Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have the one, the only Richard Morris from the Two Keto Dudes. Let's talk to him. G'day. How are we doing, Richard? Yeah, good. Down under in Australia, we're just about to start moving into winter. It's getting cold. It's going to be minus three uh, tonight, so oh. minus three Celsius. Well, here in Indiana, it doesn't know what it wants to do. So we had <laughs> spring light weather. We had two inches of snow last week, and it's probably going to go into spring again today. So, yeah. <clears throat> but other than that, things are things are, are going well here. I'm uh, busy in the final two months of my uh, my honors degree, which is uh, I went back to back to university at the ripe young age of fifty two to do biochemistry and I got my undergraduate last year in July and then went back again for another year to do an honours year which is essentially you do a research project for a year and then once that's completed I'll be qualified to uh, enter a PhD program which I'll start almost immediately so that's awesome it's keeping me busy (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine it's it's like my third career after um, I was a software developer for like 35 years and then uh, became a, a keto podcaster <laughs> for for almost a full time job for uh, for two years, and then uh, ran conferences and and the like, and then uh, got the bug for biochemistry and decided I wanted to work out how all this works. So uh, that's my potted history. One thing I was curious about, Richard. So doing the keto thing. And then going into biochemistry, has there any, or I should say, going or once you've gone this deep into biochemistry, have any of your opinions of keto or anything changed? No, they've gotten more strong, if anything. Yeah. So I did a once, uh, one of my units was uh, human biology in first year. And uh, one of the components of that in first semester was human nutrition. And uh, I, the way that I studied for that particular exam was I wrote down, I, I listened to all of the lectures again. I, I mean, I, I, I tend to go to all my lectures. That's one, that's one thing that makes that's, that marks a, uh, a, a, an older student that they, they tend to go to all of the lectures and all of the content. Um, but I, I, I literally wrote down everything that the lecturer said that was wrong and repeated it parroted it back in the in the in the exam so all of the things that the lecturer said that were right I didn't need to 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 learn and all of the things he said that were wrong um, I just parroted back exactly what they said and uh, <laughs> uh, and I did well in that uh, subject yeah I was curious how that would go because you know if you learn something that works that's not necessarily in the mainstream teachings if you will mm. how they you know how as a student, you have to not necessarily learn what they're teaching you, but take into an account, put it on the, you know, then you'd have to like, basically, I guess, like you said, parrot it back. So yeah. they think you're learning what they're teaching you, I guess. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so th- this is advice that Tim Noakes, Professor Noakes gives to young students um, who worry about the, the content that they're getting taught. Uh, he says, you need to listen to what they say. You need to regurgitate it during your examination and you need to understand why why it's wrong. And so, for example, in the uh, human um, uh, human biology uh, 
section. We had a large um, component of why saturated fat is uh, causes cardiovascular disease, and there is, um, and he was able to call from a from a body of evidence that that suggested it. Um, we've never really had any definitive evidence that's proved it, but we have had a lot of evidence that has shown that there is no association. And the thing is, if you looking at associational evidence and you find that there is a slight association, the, the, the strongest claim you can make is it may be causative. But if you find that there is no association, you can actually make a fairly strong claim that there is no cause attack or ca causation involved. So that's an example of the kind of things that I had to uh, wrote, learn and memorize and repeat. Um, <laughs> the idea of, I mean, I'm only 41, but the idea of going to school this late seems, <laughs> seems awful, but you're it's a uh, challenge. <laughs> I can only imagine. Are you still living in Canberra? I live in Canberra, Australia. Yes. And, uh, I go to the Australian national university, which is, uh, uh, one of the top 20 universities in the world and the best university in Australia. Not strong in biochemistry. Um, they have, uh, we have other strengths, predominantly political. Um, it's, 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 it's where you go if you want to end up uh, uh, getting a job in politics. Um, but we also have uh, strong, um, uh, uh, strong medical school, strong neurobiology and, and uh, strong ecology and plant science. Um, and most of the biochemistry here is plant-based. So it's looking at things like what, what can we do to increase the yield of, uh, of cotton crops or wheat, barley? Uh, how do we make uh, barley with resistant starch and things like that? So that's stuff that I'm really uninterested in. I'm, I'm really interested in, in uh, human metabolism. That's my real goal. So you say after this, you're going to go on to your PhD? Yep. And what do you so plan I, to do yeah. with that? So um, that's a very good question, one in which I don't really have a good answer. <laughs> uh, it's it, it just seems to me to be that being an undergraduate, being a biochemist is good. Uh, being a research biochemist, I mean, during my honours, I in fact, during my undergraduate, I, I, I I was a co-author for a peer-reviewed uh, journal published study. Um, so, um, you know, I being a being a research biochemist is a good thing, but um, spending three years um, really drilling into um, a field of interest, I think, is going to be useful. So um, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to work with a computational chemistry lab. It's essentially I'm doing computational biochemistry. Um, in fact, my my honours project is in computational biochemistry, um, and then I'll just do more of that in my PhD. But the the project that I'm doing for my honours year might interest you. What what I'm doing is I'm using supercomputers. I'm using the supercomputer resources of a small nation <laughs> um, on my project, and I'm building a model of all of the all of the atoms in the molecules uh, of an, the inner mitochondrial membrane and i'm treating them with different diets so it's essentially all computer modeling but it's uh it's from experimental data so it's fairly fairly <coughs> good fidelity and i'm looking at the properties of that uh, of that membrane this is the membrane where we make all of our energy as it changes depending on what fatty acids you have in your diet so that's uh that's something that's going to be relevant to uh uh to nu nutrition and uh uh, I think it's going to come up with some interesting, um, it, it's going to come up with some, makes, it's certainly going to pose some interesting questions. And I think it's going to answer some things, which will be good.
it's extremely fascinating and I mean, obviously, because those kinds of tests are really difficult to do in the wild. So doing them, yeah. being lucky enough this, in this age to be able to do it with computers to actually yeah. get results. Yeah, well, when you think about it, the smallest, uh, really the smallest thing we can look at, um, we can barely look at a virus, and the virus has got um, uh, hun uh, hundreds to thousands of, of atoms in it. Using a computer, I can actually look at, at the atoms in in a in a biological system we can't do that with microscopes so they, they often call molecular dynamics which is a field that i'm working in they often call it a computational microscope but it's using um it's using newtonian mechanics to work out how each atom in the in the system affects every other atom how the bonds stretch and how they twist and and it factors in all of these things to to give a fairly good uh, representation of, of, of what the membrane looks like so um yeah it's it's, it's very interesting i you know the the it's this is the, also the first time it's ever been done on a complex membrane so if you're wondering who was the first person who saw an inner mitochondrial membrane um uh, at an atomic level of detail and has two thumbs is this guy <laughs> so what Trying to form that question because the, the first person to do it, what gave you the idea? So um, uh, I've I've known about this. That there is experimental data in rats looking at um, uh, how essentially rat livers, rat liver, um, uh, rat livers after being given different diets. And the intent was to of this study was to try and make some claims about whether they gained weight or they lost weight, and 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 it was looking at um, uh, omega three and omega six and um, and olive oil, oleic acids. So um, so it was trying to make claims for uh, nutrition. It didn't actually pan out. There was there were some results, but you know for the most part it was just interesting. But for me, it was actually that experimental data was very useful because I was able to use that now um, at a molecular level to look at what exactly is happening and to characterize the membrane. So um, so for me, I, I, I found this data when looking for, through some nutritional stuff and thought, interesting, I could actually do that simulation in a computer. So um, that's really what got me doing it. So do you think that this study will help push things forward for, so like in like the keto sphere or do you think that'll push things forward for helping kind of doctors grow and what or how they prescribe or how they look at at more modern diets this won't and probably a lot of things that i work on won't what they will do is they'll 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 put together bricks that will eventually go to build a foundation that doctors will then be able to use to be able to make claims or or other researchers will be able to use to make claims and then doctors will use those claims to 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 change um uh, treatments but um what it does is it it interesting thing that came out of the study is that uh that a rat that has been fed mostly safflower oil, which is uh, omega-6, linoleic acid, polyunsaturated safflower oil, looks very similar. Their mitochondrial membrane looks very similar to, to the wild-type rat, which is a rat-fed regular rat chow. And then when I looked into it, turns out rat chow is full of safflower oil. So if we're using rats as a model to say, well, we're going we're gonna to do this experiment that, um, that's going to uh, involve euthanizing the, the subject, 
and then we're going to use that as a model to try and claim what would happen in a human. Um, you know, the, the reason we use mice is because they live for a very short amount of time and we can do things that are dangerous to them uh, that could end up with, um, with uh, you know, you, you have to sacrifice the rat at the end of the experiment to, to be able to harvest the harvest the tissue. Um, we do that because we can't, we can't, we're not going to do those kinds of experiments on humans. Yeah, that, that just won't happen. But the interesting thing that my study suggests is that the rats that we use, uh, that we feed rat chow, Maybe we're feeding them just pretty much safflower oil. And does that tell us anything interesting about humans? Probably not unless humans are eating pretty much safflower oil. So, you know, that that that's really where it comes down to um, uh, scientists being able to analyse the results and then say, OK, this, uh, um, uh, uh, this the information from rats is not necessarily reliable. And then, then we can look at things like, you know, you could do a blood test uh, uh, and, and get the mitochondria out of white blood cells and, and do this do a similar kind of test on humans that's that's non non destructive. But um, anyway, there's that that that's a long way down the down the road. But but for me, it's really just asking interesting questions that I find interesting in the membrane. It's not particularly keto specific, but um, it. Uh, it um, it would be part of a brick that would be used to build a foundation to to support ketogenic diets, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I mean a good amount of that goes over my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the thing is, I mean, I've been keto as of April the twentieth. I've been keto for seven years, and for pretty much six years and nine months, and what is it, four days? I've been non-diabetic. You know, so um, so I know the, the validity of the ketogenic diet. Um, uh, you know, that's uh, 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 that for me is uh, is an important milestone. And I, I I I noticed also that at the same time that I was going through my seventh year anniversary, that the company Verta Health, which uses ketogenic diets to treat type two diabetics, was valued at two billion dollars. So, you know, all of these things are happening. This is a really exciting time for ketogenic diets because um, not only are we turning around a lot of type 2 diabetics, a disease that we previously thought was irreversible, that was only progressive, a ketogenic diets are actually turning around the, the type 2 diabetes um, uh, of, uh, of patients. And so, you know, it's a very exciting time to be in. But what we need to be able to, to establish why these things happen is all of these little bricks and they're all we need to basically have a really firm foundation rather than somebody claiming, well, you know, it seems to work on everyone I've ever seen do a ketogenic diet, which is a claim I can make today. I can make a claim today that just about every diet, diabetic, type 2 diabetic that I know of who's gone on a ketogenic diet has been able to reverse the progression of their disease. That's not a scientific statement. Being able to explain why that uh, could be the case and uh, is it would be, a, you know, that, that that's one of those important bricks in that foundation. Yeah, Verta Health is is uh, very interesting. I mean, so they're in the, they're doing some of their studies out of Purdue, which is in Indiana where I live. So right, that's always pretty pretty cool yeah. to know that they're up there at Purdue, and then I know they're doing things in Texas now as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, Sarah right. Halberg in in Purdue is doing all of that, and uh, their study I think they're almost in. I think they're past four years now. Their study, so um, that's that's really interesting. And Dr. Yeah. Finney, I haven't heard anything from Dr. Finney in a while. I don't know what he's got going on, but he's a very wealthy man now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
which he, and he deserves to be. Um, he's uh, he essentially came up with all of this stuff. You know, I should say I've been ketogenic for seven years and four days. It's been seven years, one month, and four days pretty much since I first read his book. So he was the reason I, I ended up uh, uh, going on a ketogenic diet. So uh, I have him to be thankful for. And, you know, he would make the claims back then that they're anecdotal claims that, you know, we've seen, you know, some of the – we've seen a possibility of type 2 diabetes reversal. Um, he would never say this diet definitely reverses diabetes – type 2 diabetes but then when when they actually went on to 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 do sarah halberg's uh, experiment with people who've had type 2 diabetes for an average of 8.4 years uh, they were able to reverse the diabetes of uh, over 50 percent of the participants so you know that that and that's just that and, and that's a, a, a claim of significance i mean the 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 um and then and then that's another brick upon which we build you know uh, we build a, a, a an argument for for uh, ketogenic diets being a, diet, a treatment for type two diabetes, and so I'm grateful not only that he wrote the book, but also that he supported that study and that Sarah ran it, and uh, and that it produced such positive results for all type two diabetics, which I am one of, or I was one of. I never actually was diagnosed type two diabetic, but I mean I had all of the symptoms, if you will, mm -hmm. yeah. and. I mean, being I was like over 420 pounds um, when I went in to have my, you know, when I started the process of having a hernia surgery. So we mm -hmm. looked at going low carb and then I found your podcast and that pretty much changed that. So, you know, then I went keto that year. So you started the keto, the, the two keto dudes, I think it was like what, around April of 2016? I think we started in in February. To be honest, uh, that was like when Carl first started at it. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm not I'm not absolutely sure. You could you might be right, but I I, I vaguely recollect that it was a, towards the beginning of the year, and Carl had, Carl had been keto for like maybe a week or two weeks when on, when we recorded the first episode, and the reason we did it was because um, uh, he tells this story that I was on Facebook, you know. Um, taking victory laps about how I'd reverse diabetes, doing doing the opposite of everything that the that the dietitians would would have me do, and um, and he was interested in this, but he was a he was a professional podcaster. He's been podcasting since two thousand two, and uh, he decided he'd tr not only try the ketogenic diet, but to try and stick him to the diet, he would do a podcast about it. And uh, uh, he asked me asked me to be involved in it because he didn't he didn't understand the science and he wanted he wanted both. So so the way that these podcasts work is you have an everyman who asks the questions as a proxy for the audience. So when the audience is in the in listening to a podcast and they're thinking, I wonder how that works. That's the point where Carl automatically knows to go in and ask the question, and then and then I'd try and give as best an answer as I could. And uh, so we started that. I, I, I promised to do ten episodes. <laughs> we ended up doing two hundred. Um, I promised to do ten episodes for him, uh, and uh, and then I was, uh, 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 I guess, you know, I was just enjoying the process, but realizing I needed to understand more about how this works. And so that's really what I got me into biochemistry, to reading as as much of the literature as I could on the subject. And then realizing, well, you know, I really should 
um, go back to school and, and and become a biochemist because this is fascinating me and I can't see that it won't be fascinating me, you know, when I'm 100 years old. And so this is, this is a good thing for me to spend the second half of my life on. Because that was one of the things when I found the podcast, I found that it was easily digestible. I was able to get, even if I didn't always understand the science behind everything, even especially when you had various guests on, I was able to listen, I was able to understand, and it was something that kept me motivated to stay on track. And because I'm, you know, I'm very curious and I do need that sort of, you know, obvious science background of something to say, well, this is why you probably should do this instead of, you know, it will it work for me. But yeah. but I mean it was it was easily digestible. So you could give me the science and I could, you know, get a a basic grasp of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because especially when you're starting something as extreme, if you will, as the ketogenic diet, and you start seeing results, people in your life, your immediate family, your coworkers and such will start asking questions. And if you sure. can't really even begin to sort of answer why, then they're going to be more likely to be worried. They're going to, you know, I still have people like, well, you're going to die because you eat too much red meat and all that stuff. So, you know. Yeah, it, it, there is a little bit of that when you first start the ketogenic diet, you're thinking these experts can't all be wrong. Um, you know, how is it that, you know, a couple of guys I saw on YouTube, um, this, those guys being Tim Noakes and Gary Fetke and uh, Finney and Volek, how, how is it that these guys um, uh, know something totally different from the rest of the world and uh, the world of experts? And how could they be right? But, you know, you start a ketogenic diet and um, within two or three months, you're no longer diabetic. And, you know, it, for, for, for me, I, I had been uh, diabetic since I was 38. So, um, you know, this and, and I would get slightly better if I did like, you know, in, uh, um, uh, step one Atkins, for example. I'd be a little bit better. Um, but it was only when I went ketogenic that, that things really clicked into place. And then things started to make sense. And then I'm thinking, you know, um, yeah, the body runs on glucose or on fatty acids. And if you eat glucose, it runs on glucose. And if you don't eat glucose, it runs on fatty acids. And, um, and learning that there was that metabolic switch between the two, um, uh, and you can just you can you can basically turn that switch on or off by either eating glucose or not eating glucose. And so, um, you know, it's a very simple thing to just not eat glucose. And all of a sudden, now your body runs on fatty acids predominantly. It makes a little bit of glucose for those tissues that have to have glucose, and it makes ketones as a byproduct of burning fat um, that keep your brain happy. And you know, um, and you you lose the fog that you're in when you were uh, when I can speaking for myself when I was insulin resistant and type two diabetic. That you know your brain's in a fog. You wake up like you've been stewed all night, and and you're in a fog all day. That uh, losing that and all of a sudden become being able to focus and being and feeling like I can uh, um, feeling like my brain's actually working like it was ten years earlier, um, and that maybe my experience of feeling like my brain wasn't working wasn't just age, but in fact it was progression of type 2 diabetes um you know that uh, that sort of stuck me to the thing and then you know eventually i i i was feeling so good i had to start telling everybody about it and that sort of 
progressed to a podcast and then it became a conference that we had three times a year and um, I'd go to other con other people's conferences and I'd meet most of the the people in the in the field and um, you know it became a it became a, an important part of my life so um, but yeah it, 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 it just started out not wanting to be diabetic yeah, I mean, when I started, I didn't even realize I was diabetic. I knew that I was having a lot of issues. I was having leg pain that I couldn't account for. I was living on ibuprofen and allergy yeah. medicine and heartburn medicine. And you don't even realize the pain you are that you're in until it goes away. And you mentioned that brain fog. That day, I still remember that day when I realized it wasn't there. Yeah. It's an How awakening. It? I mean, it really yeah. is. You're just kind of like, wait, I'm alive almost. You're like, I, I'm not sleepy. I'm not drowsy. I'm, I'm clear headed. And you, and you don't even realize how long you felt that way. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it feels like. Um, and uh, it and there's a very simple biochemical uh, answer to why it is. And it just, um, you know, it, it's just this switch that we, if we're healthy. And evolutionarily speaking, we're not having access to a lot of glucose. We're only having access to glucose sort of towards the end of autumn when the berries come out, um, uh, you know, or rarely when you when you when you go hunting honey. But for the most part, we're living on animals. We've caught. We're living on um, tubers we dug up. Maybe there's some. There's certainly some starch in those. Um, but uh, you know, for the most part, we're living on. Um, uh, the, our reserves. We're living on our, our fats between hunts, so we go out and hunt, eat a lot of food, and then we're using our body fat as a reserve until we next kill something. And so um, that's uh, that that switch from one state to another is a normal thing, uh, but we lose it. We lose the ability to switch quickly to and from the states. And then what ends up happening is that we're stuck in the glucose eating state, and. Uh, one of the things that, that that one of the things that when you when you when you're in that state you have um, your insulin is elevated to be able to shuttle all that glucose into your cells. That insulin has other effects, and one of those is putting fat in your fat tissue, and the other effect is telling all of your cells not to burn fat and in fact make fat from any energy that they have and export it off to the fat cells. And so uh, that. Um, process if you are in a in a state where you have access to pizzas and and garlic bread and ice cream and uh, you know full full strength coke for example um those you see those as energy sources and so um i remember when i was a type 2 diabetic i used to be able to eat two large domino's pizzas all by myself and i'd still be looking for garlic bread and then having some of their brownies for dessert and and washing it down with two liters of uh, of coke these days if i have like a fathead pizza i'll have two slices of fathead and i'm absolutely full and the reason is because we can utilize that energy directly. It's, it's not being shuffled off into storage. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, 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 the difference is remarkable. That's funny because I just happened to watch a YouTube video last night. It was a like a, like a brief little history of Dr. Pepper. And mm -hmm. they used to have a slogan on the bottle that was 10, 2, and 4. Okay. So like if you're – so if you're feeling run down, have one at 10, have one at 2, and have one at 4. <laughs> And I was like, wow. that is insane. I mean, it was on the bottle. Yeah. yeah. 
And, the, you know, the reason for that is because you're having breakfast at 8, you're having lunch at 12, and you're having dinner at 6. Yep. And so what they're suggesting is don't let your insulin drop. Keep it up. Keep giving it things to you – know, keep keep giving it easy energy that you can use with your insulin. What ends up happening is that you end up with insulin elevated all day. If you eat – so they're proposing to have six meals a day, your regular six meals, and your Dr. Pepper um, yeah. pepper uppers. Okay, so uh, what that's doing is it's like uh, I don't know if they they do this in baseball, but in our version of baseball, which is called cricket, which lasts for five days and is extremely boring. Um, when the game gets really boring, somebody blows up a beach ball, and everybody in the crowd tries to keep it aloft, and it's it it's uh, uh, in exchange for uninteresting sport on the on the field. And so it's a little the, your insulin is a little bit like this beach ball, where everybody every time you take a little little dr pepper picker upper at uh, two at 10 2 and 4 that what that's doing is it's just elevating that beach ball back up again you never get to the state where the beach ball goes down and you can then start to burn fatty acids um so you know that's uh um it's remarkable <laughs> I, I had no idea they had that slogan i remember right around the time i was finding keto there was a uh, there was a kind of like a diet trend going through my office uh they were doing something where they were mixing orange juice with water. So they would have like, you know, maybe a cup of orange juice and mixing it with a large amount of water and drinking that throughout the day. That was to help keep their metabolism up. Really? And I mean, I, yeah. would, well, I don't know, but, but yeah. I mean, you know, when, when everybody seems to be doing something, you're like, well, maybe there's yeah. something to that. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's a beach ball. So, yeah. so that, yeah. And the, the thing is that, uh, so insulin doesn't only, as, as I mentioned, it's not only for shuttling glucose into cells, um, but it's also for this switch turning off um, using glucose. But essentially what it does is all of our energy we make is in the mitochondria. This is the, the organelle that's of most interest to me. And our ability to get fatty acids into the mitochondria is turned off by insulin. Um, and so what it ends up happening is uh, energy is instead diverted into making new fats and exporting it out of the cell. So literally we're, we're in a starvation state. If you give somebody, <clears throat> you know, some diluted orange juice, uh, you know, a, a sip of diluted orange juice every couple of minutes throughout the day, they never burn fat, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it because, because their insulin is elevated the entire time. Um, they'll go from they'll go from a Snickers bar to a you know to to a to a to a pizza to a burger to you know cornflakes for breakfast. All these things are elevating their elevating their insulin, permanently keeping them in a state where the only energy they can use is glucose. And so you know, within a within an hour or two hours after eating, you've had your lunch at twelve, and it's two o'clock. And now you've got no glucose. You've used all your glucose. In fact, your blood glucose is going a little bit low. Rather than allowing the body to switch into burning fatty acids, they're proposing to, you know, have another sip, have another sip of that diluted orange juice. Just keep that beach ball in the air. Well, I and remember the beach ball is in the air. Yeah. I remember yeah. that two o'clock search for candy and two o'clock search for, you know, whatever people had, because, you know, living that office life, <clears throat> you know, you, every, people would have bowls <clears throat> of candy on their desks or they would have snacks and, or there would always be like little stashes of stuff and you would go and find those things. Two o'clock rolls around. Oh man, I need to, oh, I'm getting drowsy. I'm falling asleep at my desk. I better go find, you know, that, 
you know, the candy and such. And then that not needing that anymore was just incredible. So that's mm. one reason I want to do, you know, things like this, have conversations. I want, you know, that's why I do my YouTube channel. I'm growing it. It's very small. Um, I just want maybe if I can help a couple of people, then I've done, you know, try to pay it forward, I guess, if you will. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I learned a lot from a lot of people and I want to push it out there. I mean, I know there's lots of content. There's so much more content now than in 2016. There's so many more products now than there were in 2016. I mean, there's yeah. almost an infinite supply of keto branded stuff in the stores now that, I mean, it's almost kind of gotten to like a parody of itself. Right. And some of that stuff is is not good for you. I mean, oh, right. It's, uh, and some of it's just perfectly fine. I, 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 you know, when Carl and I started the show, we had a lot of people thanking us and, and we tried to say, don't thank us, pay it forward, you know, because um, there's no possible way that I, I have personally tried to thank all of the scientists who looked into this stuff and convinced me in the early days. And there's no possible way I could adequately thank them other than doing the podcast, getting out to people and, and 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 helping other people along the way. And that's my and that was our theme for the first Keto Fest was pay it forward. And that's my message to to you know people like you who listen to our podcast. Um, I, I'm grateful that, that you got something out of it. Um, I'd really like to see you influence a lot of people and for them to have to pay it forward. So that's uh, so I, 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 I couldn't I couldn't support you more doing this podcast. I really appreciate it, Richard. So I no, mean, no I do. I I am very sad that I didn't get to go to either the either of the keto fest that you guys had, especially that first one. That one was pretty epic, and it was. I mean, I listened to all the accounts on the podcast and everything, and I just remember being like, I want to go to those. I want to have the Science Sunday. I want to, yeah. You know, even if I don't understand all of it, I still want to immerse myself in it and do my best to learn. And I know that I'm. Um, still fortunate and you know the things that i get to do but i still little things like that i mean you know like it's kind of like a concert i didn't get to go to you know what i mean there's <laughs> <laughs> a there is there was a, a degree of fomo around those keto fests uh, unfortunately 2020 came along and, and stopped us doing anymore um i i i don't know if we're going to do any more being that um that uh the podcast is on, on a long hiatus um but uh, you never know but there are lots of other people doing conferences and you know after after we're mostly vaccinated and we're traveling around the world again which you know we're we're about a year away from that all happening um then probably you'll you'll see some more keto conferences happen but in the meantime there's lots of virtual ones they're not quite the same thing you, you it's it's not quite uh as good as uh, uh going to a cooking demonstration and getting a taste of what you just saw cooked and right. you know all the things that, that, that are unique about keto fest but you know i think that uh there's uh once we get past 2020 um and uh and uh the pandemic i think uh i think i think there will be more keto conferences i hope so I just don't, I, I'm just not sure how going forward, how big events will be and how, how everything, I mean, just, there's a lot of uncertainty in that. So, I mean, I'm yeah. hopeful. I mean, I want to go to concerts again, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. music is a big part of my life. This is a huge part of my life because it allows me to 
continue my life. Um, mm. What else? Um, you said you you'd mentioned to me you had a uh, conference next week. Is that yes, gonna be, uh, is that going to uh, be exciting or boring or? It's gonna well, it's it's a, it's uh, it's a conference of um, of uh, oh, what do they call me? Type of accountants, and they wanted to have a speaker come in and talk about keto. And the guy who did the who who runs the conference has been a listener of two keto dudes, and so they've asked me to come and do a, do a do a presentation of on keto. But it's got to be really dumbed down for people who've never even thought of going on a diet. So I'll be talking a little bit about type two diabetes and how it's sort of in the last fifty years it's gone from you know one percent of our population to over ten percent of our population, and how. Um, how our, our diet has effectively done this to us and how the, the environment that we give ourselves um, through the diet that we eat has essentially set us up for this and, and how to how to reverse out of it um, by by essentially changing our body from burning glucose to burning fat. That's all it is. It's actually, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the naturalest thing ever. And, uh, but until you, until you do it, when you first, when somebody first says to you, you need to, to get your energy from fat, not from glucose, you're like, glucose is a source of our energy, isn't it? And, you know, it, it requires, it requires taking that first step off the pontoon and onto the canoe. <laughs> to be able I to, imagine to once a lot journey. of, I imagine once a lot of companies like accounting, once mm -hmm. they realize that they're going to get more productivity out of their employees, if they're more in line with a low carb ketogenic lifestyle, they're more alert, they're more aware, they're better able to function mentally. I wonder yeah. if they'll start to push that and go uh, and go away from, you know, practical advice, I guess, if you will. So that is the beginning of this, I think. Yes, I think this is happening across industries that uh, that um, uh, it's, it's certainly if you have a founder of a company who has gone keto, and I guess this is a thing. It's also the doctors. Most of the doc, most of the good keto doctors, at one point were a little bit overweight and tried this diet on themselves, and that's what got them going. I think probably the only exception may be Eric Westman. Uh, he saw a number of his patients do it, and that's what got him into it. But pretty much all of the others have. Um, uh, it was only once they had that pers personal epiphany that they then decided, you know, this actually, this is reversing all my type two diabetes symptoms. And I have a couple of a couple of uh, patients who have type two diabetes and asked if they could do this. I might see. I might suggest that they try it cautiously. And check out the results, and then when they see the results, you can't unsee that, you know. So, um, and I think it's the same with um, with uh, uh, with people who run businesses. You know, they they uh, uh, you know CEOs of large organisations. They get that they have a personal epiphany, and all of a sudden, you know, that made a difference to how productive I am during the day. I have a thousand people working for me. It's added 10, 15, 20 percent to my productivity. What if I could add 10, 15, 20% to the productivity of our business? Wow. And, you know, so you can, you, you can see why it's, uh, you can see why it's uh, intriguing. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's, it, it's kind of a cool time to be around and, you know, and paying attention to this. I mean, you're going to have the pushback. I know 
And I don't know. And I saw something yesterday and I don't necessarily know if it was just a meme, if you will, if it was like made up because it, when something new comes out, I didn't get a chance to dive really deep into it. But I know that Biden just put out a uh, like a climate plan and mm -hmm. he said he wanted to cut out 90 yep. percent of red meat and only have four pounds a year. Yeah, I think what? that's it. I think that's that's fake news. I think that's that, why, like I said, I, I just happened to see it last things. night and I hadn't had a chance to look at yeah. it because I, I got yeah. to bed early last night to get up early this morning. And I saw it and I was like, well, let me look and see if I can find something about it. And, I, and I'm i like, well, I really hope that's not real. Yeah. But I mean, it seemed so awful that, extreme to be real. So there was a conference I went to in Switzerland um, where Walter Willett was there. He's from Harvard. He's a famous epidemiologist from Harvard. He's also a vegan, a vegetarian, actually, I, I, I tell a lie. Um, and uh, he is he he and a number of the uh, the scientists at the uh, at the Chan School of Epidemiology in, in Harvard uh, have have been doing decades worth of, of studies on using food frequency questionnaires and 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 coming up with uh, suggestions to reduce saturated fat in the diet. And of course, saturated fat is just code word for animal fat. Uh, for the most part um and so um at this uh, conference in switzerland there was also people like gary Taubes was there and nina teicholz was there and stephen finney was there sarah hulberg was there and um and uh we reviewed the um the evidence for reversing type 2 diabetes and at the end of the conference the conference chair said well you know i think we can all agree and walter willett was in the front row i think the consensus statement out of this conference is that saturated fat is no longer a nutrient of concern and everybody nodded including walter willett and then like four months later he brings out the the eat lancet study which talks about how you know if we're going to 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 um uh combat climate change we need to all go vegetarian and that comes from that comes uh, essentially out of uh, a, a, a misunderstanding of how uh, of how agriculture works. Um, most of the energy that we um, that will most of the so, for example, one thing they say is that, you know it takes more water to to produce a kilogram of of, uh, of beef than it does to produce a kilogram of of uh, corn. Well, they're not equal in calories. <laughs> Um, there, you know, you've got double the calories in beef plus all of the fat-based nutrients that you don't get in 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 corn. In fact, corn's nutrient nutrient depleted compared to compared to animals. Uh, and uh, you know, then, then the argument about uh, animals belching methane. Well, in fact, you know, rice paddies produce you know, significantly more methane than cattle ever did. And then you know, they're talking about well, you know, we've got a limited uh, space on the planet to be able to. Um, to be able to make food because human population is growing out of control. And yes, that's, you know, there we do have a lot of people on the planet, but we also have a lot of grasslands on the planet. And you can't grow vegetables on grasslands. You can grow cattle on grasslands and 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 the process of doing that sequesters carbon in the soil because cattle put and they tread it into the soil. And so, you know, it, uh, it and that uh, and the methane that the cattle cattle are burping out is is being captured by the nitrogen nitrogen fixing foods that they're eating. So it's a very small it's a closed cycle. So it's not like you're digging it's not like you're digging methane out of the ground that's been sequestered there for for you know a, a million years um, uh, like you are when you're digging fossil fuels up. So that's a different it's a different. Uh, 
it's a different argument. And so uh, when you actually look at it dispassionately and you look at it um, uh, from the point of view of ideal human nutrition, you find out that um, uh, seeds and grains are a really poor source of, especially monocultures, a very poor source of, uh, of nutrition for humans, and they do a lot of damage to the planet. Um, you'd be doing much better uh, running herds of cattle on rangelands and 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 uh, migrating them from place to place to um, to to manage uh, your rangelands. So um, you know that the best one, the best person talked about that. This is Peter Ballasted. He's an expert in the field, and he will, he will tell you all about it. But um, no, from a personal point of view. I know what happens when I eat grains. I become rapidly diabetic. So you know, if uh, if um, uh, if I was forced to have to eat um, uh, uh, my sources of protein and and uh, energy from from plants, which is just mostly uh, mostly through uh, energy from carbohydrates, and uh, then um, then I'd become very sick very quickly. Whereas if I do the same from animals, I'm I'm able to um, uh, able to be essentially non-diabetic and have a normal lifestyle. So, um, from my point of view, I'm I'm not uh, going to be changing to <laughs> becoming vegetarian any day soon. Oh no! I mean, <clears throat> that's one thing that I I mean I have conversations about that sort of thing, and and when you know when you try to explain that, like twenty four, I think it's like somewhere around twenty four percent of the Earth's surface is useful for, or really can only be used to you know, grow and, you know. 24% is not water. <laughs> pretty right, much. right, right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. of actual land mass. So 24% yeah, of the earth yeah. is not, of the land mass is Darable. suitable for ruminant animals and only 4% of that is for monoculture, right? Something right. along those lines, those numbers might be a little bit off a little, but the gist of it. So yeah, <clears throat> there's a lot more room on the planet to grow cattle than there is to grow corn. And then when we, and one thing I've always looked at too, when you're looking at corn and, and any kind of product that we're utilizing is it has to be enriched, which means mm. coming out of the ground, it's not good enough for us to survive on. We have to do right. something else to it. Yeah. We have to add iron filings to your cornflakes for breakfast. And then people the go <laughs> that I've seen like TikToks and stuff and people are like, there's iron shavings and metal shavings yeah, in my cereal. Well, yes, it yeah. is. If you if you if you grind up a bunch of cornflakes with water, and then uh, into a slurry, and then you put a magnet on the bottom of it, and you leave it overnight, and you pour off the stuff on the top, what you'll end up with is all the iron filings in the bottom of it. Yeah, that's, yeah, we that's, did that in middle school. Supplementation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we. There's a lot of also a lot of iron in beef. Oh yeah. So, you know, the the, the thing is that people. People don't like to face the fact that we're actually animals. We're 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 mammals, and the raw materials necessary to make mammals comes from other mammals. So, um, uh, so if you want the best new best possible nutrition, um, then um, then mammal meat, uh, you know, cows, sheep, goats, um, they're ideal. Um, then uh, the ruminants that uh, that can that essentially have very few essential nutrients that they can't that they need. Uh, they build, they generate it all from their bacterial um, uh, uh, multiple stomachs. And then, secondly, you, 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 the other you, you, you monogasts like um, pigs, and uh, uh, probably next best. And then you'd look at uh, 
uh, other, uh, you look at maybe birds like you know, um, uh, chicken, duck, goose, um, you know, uh, as uh, uh, maybe lizards. If you if you live in um, in, in a, outback Australia, for example, um, goannas, for example, um, uh, kangaroos. These are all animals that have concentrated all of the nutrients from their environment specific to their to, to their needs. And, you know, if we want to go out and forage like a gorilla and eat 23 hours a day, then then um, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is to eat something that's done all of that hard work for you. And that's, you know, in the case of uh, in the case of mammals, they've, they've concentrated all of the nutrients necessary to build mammals. And so if you're if you're thinking what is the best thing for me to eat um, in order to 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 adequately uh, uh, support my nutrition, then um, you know an animal that has already you know, concentrated all of those from its environment is probably ideal. So it seems makes so too much sense, right? <laughs> it, <laughs> it makes seems, too much sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just. I mean, I think. <clears throat> I kind of think that, and I and I and I imagine that humans have probably always been kind of willfully ignorant mm-hmm. when it comes to a lot of different things. Not always, not necessarily always with nutrition and what we eat, but I think that we always. I mean, obviously, human history has a way of repeating itself. So, I mean, whether or not it's food related or whatever. We're always kind of, we always want to be the best that we can be. And I think people try to be, people are, all the vegetarian, all the vegan, everything is coming from a good place, if you will. Agreed. I totally agree. And I have no, I have no fight with a with vegan um, uh, really at all. I mean, I've tried keto vegan and I, I it was a lot of hard work but it was possible to do it i had to i, I had to be over lacto um, so eat eggs and milk um, a dairy but i was able to do it i had no fight with a vegan at all um, uh, i have a fight with uh, people who industrialize food production um, like you know breakfast cereals and fortify a fortifier and um, and what they're serving is somebody's immediate need for I don't want to be hungry and that immediate need doesn't serve their long-term goals uh, for um, uh, correctly running the body um, so uh, and and in the case of um, because we've industrialized production of all of these grains the actual if you look at the components of a box of cereal for example and look at what it costs the manufacturer, what each element in that box costs the manufacturer. The ink on the outside of the box costs more than the food contents in the box because it's industrialized, it's so cheaply produced. Um, you know, so um, uh, the problem is that that uh, most most of us are thinking, well, I just don't want to be hungry, so I'll eat that box of cereal. And um, when we learn a little bit about the the effect of that of doing that for several decades on a on a on a body that's uh, able to become type two diabetic, um, the, your outcome several decades down the road is losing uh, low, lower extremity amputation, losing fingers and toes, um, uh, diabetic uh, kidney disease, diabetic blindness, um, atherosclerosis, um, 
you know, eventually cardiovascular disease and heart attacks and strokes. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the outcomes become very serious uh, over a long period of time. But as far as the manufacturer is concerned, they're just making people not hungry by giving them something that makes them not hungry and nobody's looking further down the road. So that's kind of why we started the Keto Dudes podcast was to start to talk about these kinds of issues and get people thinking about uh, uh, about um, uh, feeding their body um, and learning to cook and all of these things that come come to, uh, along with, um, with the ketogenic lifestyle. Um, and I, I guess learning to cook was one of the secret weapons of the, you know, that was that was one of the important things was if you can cook your own food, you've now taken control over your nutrition, whereas the manufacturer of that pretty painted box, um, if you're just opening the box and just pouring it in your bowl and assume that they've got your best interest in heart, um, that manufacturer can do some pretty horrible things to you without you even knowing it. So anyway, that's uh, that was that was really our precis was that. Uh, was to teach people to cook, teach people how to, to, to think about food and to switch their body into a ketogenic state where um, they could reverse their type 2 diabetes. And I'm really thankful for the recipe section you guys had because that <laughs> gave me a lot of ideas and, and it really did get the gears turning on how to, at least in the beginning, make it seem more sustainable because I know in the beginning of being ketogenic, there was a lot of big changes. So normally when you're making a plate of food, you have your meat, your veggie, you have your starches. And so your plate looks full yes. and you see, okay, I've got a nice plate of food. It looks well balanced and it looks how it's supposed to look. That's my idea of what a plate of food should look like. So when we, when you go keto and you're a person who is, majorly food addicted i mean let's be real i was over 400 pounds that was a thing i mean still you don't, to this day, you don't get there without enjoying a meal no i mean you know i mean even to this day like i still struggle with food quantity and uh you mm -hmm. know if i look at something it has to be enough food i fit to feel like i'm getting the value out of the food and that's still something that i struggle with day to day i don't know if that will ever go away but Especially in the beginning when I was putting together, you know, plates of food for the family, I have broccoli and I have steak. Well, that doesn't look like enough food. How am I supposed to, how is this supposed to fill me up? How is this supposed yeah. to give me everything? I don't have my mashed potatoes. I don't have my macaroni and cheese. How is this yeah. supposed to satiate me and how am I going to move forward? So with the recipe section that you guys had in every one of your episodes, it gave an idea on what I could do to further make my lifestyle sustainable. And I mean, I've been five years now, well, almost five, because I started in September yeah, of 2016. Yeah. So, yeah. and I mean, <clears throat> well over a hundred pounds. You even mentioned me on that hundred, the hundredth episode. So. Yeah, we did, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, I lost I lost total uh, uh, fifty kilos, hundred a little bit over hundred pounds, hundred and ten pounds, um, and then um, uh, pretty much lost that after after six months or so, and then I sort of wavered along between I I sort of like uh, put on ten pounds, lose ten pounds, put on ten pounds, so my body got to the point where it reached a new plateau, a new homeostasis. And I didn't see any reason to get off it. 
because I was eating till I was satiated. Um, I have enough energy to be able to, I mean, I, I cycle my bike 14K a day. Um, I have enough energy to be able to do all the functional things I care about in life. Um, and, uh, you know, so so I think I could probably, I'm, I'm currently sitting on 110 kilos um, and I think, and that a lot of that's COVID weight. I think I could probably get down to, I mean, the, the the point where I couldn't lose any more weight was about 103 kilos. I reckon I could, if I really starved myself for consistently for like three months, ate only protein, no fat, no, you know, absolutely no carbohydrate, I could probably get down to 95 kilos, but the quality of life would be, it wouldn't be worth it, you know. So, um, you know, that uh, to get... The ideal thing for me was to get my body's appetite homeostasis to do its job, to accurately tell me how much I should and shouldn't eat. And it, I let it set what my plateau should be. Um, and it put me in a state where I can fast for 24 hours if I need to. Um, evolutionarily speaking, that, you know, you would want to be able to survive a day of bad hunting. Um, and so, you know, being able to fast for 24 hours is uh, is, is ideal. Um, if I got down to 95 kilos, I probably couldn't do that. Probably, you know, I could probably, I could probably intermittently eat, but I'd have to eat at least one meal a day. So, um, uh, you know, the, there are advantages in carrying a little bit more body fat than we think of as being, you know, um, ideal. But... Uh, um, and there are studies that show that, uh, for example, a Danish longitudinal study shows that people who live the longest have a BMI of 28. That's overweight. So, you know, there's uh, there is good evidence to support it. When are we going to get a new BMI like structure? Are they? Are, is that something that's even like in the works? Because I know that BMI was, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, was more so to look at populations as a whole and not the individual. Yeah, so BMI was invented by a Belgian almost 400 years ago, and it was a Belgian astrophysicist or astronomer, I guess I would call him at the time, and he was he was um, contracted to look through all of the medical data uh, in a um, in a municip municipality uh, to see if he could uh, come up with a measure from all of the things that the patients told their doctors 400 years ago what can we find in this data that will tell us how fat they are? Because we, we have a hypothesis that being fat makes you prone to certain diseases and the medical history has their diseases. And we want you to tell us from this how fat they are. And he looked through it and you had, you know, their age and that wasn't really very specific and they had which which region they were in, wasn't their career, what, what their occupation was. It had their height. Well, their height's not really going to tell you how fat they are. It had their weight. Now, People who are fat are way more, so maybe that's useful. And so he went through, you know, the gender, their, their, the length of their toenails, you know, how long it's been since they last had a haircut, all of these pieces of information. And eventually he, he thought to himself, what, I'm really, what I really want is the, is the measurement around their belly. That's, that's what I'm aiming at. But he knew that if, uh, if you could, if you could um, suppose that all humans were roughly, roughly cube-shaped, uh, or roughly rect, roughly uh, box shaped, um, and if you could suppose that they were as wide as they were tall, then you could say, well, if I take 
I know that I know that their weight is a is 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 uh, uh, one measurement I can use, and what I need is their volume, and then I can roughly work out what their uh, what their circumference is. Um, by 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 doing that, he was able to come up with a guess. Okay, so he used uh, squared the squared the person's height, divided that into their weight, and said that's going to be a rough proxy for how big they are around their circumference. And it gave them enough information to be able to do this study. Now, this study was um, was used by insurance companies, and then this is this is four hundred years ago, so insurance companies have been around for a very long time. Not not health insurance, but like um, you know actuarial actuarial statisticians for actuarial companies. Um, and they so they had all of this data from from this. Uh, um, from this municipality, uh, and they had these BMI values, and they had the propensity for these certain diseases for these BMIs. And so, what they did was they then went to physicians going forward and said, "We want you to give us people's people. You want it, we want you to give give us the BMI of the patients." And the physicians would say, "BMI, what's that?" And they would say, "Well, you know, it's weight divided by square of the square of the height." And what they could have done, what they should have done, is given every all of these physicians a tape measure. And then they would have had had an actual measurement that would be useful, but no, because of momentum, they kept doing this thing. And now, four hundred years later, we're still doing this. We're still measuring um, uh, using. It was essentially a technique for data mining. This astrophysicist and astronomer had come up with this idea for how to data mine position data um, to try and guesstimate what people's um, uh, fatness was. Girth, essentially. So anyway, that's how BMI happened, and we are still using it. And it's past; it's four hundred years past its use by date. Uh, so what we really should be doing is we should be doing DEXA scans and working and and knowing exactly what the percentage of uh, of body fat in a person is. That would be the accurate way. Um, we could measure them, um, uh, weigh them in in immersion in and outside of a, of a tank of water and that would actually give us more information as well but um uh you know or even use impedance scales you know they're, they're cheaper as now you can get one of those for 100 bucks on that on amazon we should be using that to tell us how what kind of body fat people have um but uh you know unfortunately we're still using these old techniques because you know th there's a momentum to these things yeah, and one of the things that I, because I just uh, recorded another podcast on Thursday that I haven't got a chance to release yet, but we were talking about <clears throat> basically stepping away from the scale because the scale is one of the biggest like points of failure with any kind of lifestyle shift. So if you are so focused on what the scale says, you're going to get so discouraged that you're just going to give up, where that doesn't tell you hardly any of the story. So. Mm. It's only going to tell you how much you weigh, right? It's not going to tell yeah. you how good you feel because you've made the right choices. You know, it's not going to tell you that it has nothing to do with getting off medications. It has nothing to do with all of the all the benefits that we've talked about today. But it's one of the so biggest reasons people that they fail. Think of all the things that go factor into how much you weigh, whether you've had a bowel movement, you know, recently or not. Um, if you drink a litre of water, you weigh a kilogram more, 2.2 pounds more. You have a, a litre of water, you're going to weigh 2.2 pounds extra. Um, if, you're, if you've woken up how to pee, you've, just, you've probably peed in half a litre at least. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that factor into 
uh, how much you weigh. Um, another another thing is is lean mass. You know your your lean mass. I'm I'm a I'm currently 110 kilograms total weight. My lean mass is 82 kilograms. You know, so my 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 body fat is is uh, right around 25 percent. So, um, you know, that's uh, um, uh, it's hard to tell from total weight how much of that is fat and how much of it is fat the person needs and how much isn't. And this is why I get back to the point of the finding a comfortable homeostasis, getting you getting to the point where your body tells you when 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 to stop eating. Uh, by using satiation cues because your body is integrating all of that information. Your body is integrating how easy it can get to the energy that you have stored. Um, this is something we don't know. You know, um, uh, some people, um, you know, if the, if, the, if the blood supply is not robust to certain depots of body fat, um, we can end up with body fat that has no metabolic role, you know. So, um, and, and so the, blood, the, the, the appetite, integrates all of that if the what it, how much energy it has access to to tell you how much energy you need to eat in the meal um, and it's only when we pervert that we're literally sticking our you know our foot on the scale to 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 pervert the 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 that um homeostasis by feeding us carbs and remaining keeping our insulin high all day um that uh, that that gets out of kilter but um you know for the most part if you go on a low carb diet it, you you will find that you will eat less because you will be more satiated and you will find that you will hit a plateau that your body thinks is an adequate place to stop. Now, you may not think, you may look at yourself in the mirror and think, well, I don't look like that cover of that men's magazine or that women's magazine. Um, but that probably says more about um, your ability to be, Ability to be misled by marketing than it does about your body's ideal, uh, accurate um, uh, uh, choice of how much um, energy you should be storing and eating. For sure, because I mean, like, you know, I've talked about that. It's like I'm not going to be the guy with the washboard abs. I'm not going to be, you know, the guy that's in the gym ten hours a day. You know, so to look like that takes all that work. Where just making sure you're healthy just means the right choices every day so yeah get your a1c down below below 5.7 and pretty much you've 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 reversed your type 2 diabetes your chance of uh, of a heart attack or a stroke has dropped uh, significantly um, you've disassociated obesity with all of the diseases that come along with it and at that point once you've disassociated obesity with all of these horrible diseases like you know, diabetic amputation, diabetic retinopathy, um, heart disease, stroke. Uh, at that point, obesity is no longer a disease state. It becomes an injury risk at best. Um, you know, if you're bigger uh, you, and you got roll over on your ankle, you're likely to do more damage than if you're smaller. Um, and that's definitely true. But it's not. It's no longer a sign of disease. It's no longer a, an, uh, uh, once you get your A1C down, uh, below 5.7, um, you are just, you know, you're just as healthy um, as uh, somebody whose A1C was never um, uh, elevated to the to the tens. <laughs> Did you ever have an A1C done? You I never had worst? one prior to being keto. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I imagine I may have over the course of time, but I don't have any record or, you know, I never yeah. really remember what it was. But since I've had my A1C and it's been 5.5, five, 5.4, five, 
Perfect. Yeah. 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 Mine was mine was uh, mine was eleven point two at my worst. Um, my my triglycerides were one thousand one hundred and eleven. Um, now normal is under a hundred. 100 milligrams per deciliter. So if you think I was, I had 1,111 milligrams per deciliter, there's 1,000 milligrams in a gram. So I had 1.111 grams of, uh, of fat in my blood per litre and, oh, per deciliter. So I would have, I had 11 grams per litre, roughly five litres of blood. So I had roughly 50 grams of fat at any point running through my veins and because my insulin was up all the time i wasn't able to use it for energy so what did, where did it have to go nowhere so it stayed there it was energy parked in my veins um in my in my veins and arteries um waiting to be used and my body fat at that point um the reason my glucose was high was that i'd finally hit my uh, the limit of how much uh, energy could be stuffed into my fat cells uh, so it was all spilling out into my into my into my uh, into my circulation. As soon as I got my insulin down, all of a sudden that 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 fuel is now energy is now available energy. Before it was just fuel that I could not turn into energy. Once it becomes fuel, I can turn into energy. Bushka, all the weight came off. So you know, and uh, and my uh, my my A one C dropped to five point two, um, and it's been there for for ever since. So you know, six years and nine months. So. Um, and uh, and my triglycerides dropped to under a hundred um, because that's just fat on its way to being used for energy. And if you if for some reason if you have your insulin high and you can no longer use your fat for energy, it pulls <laughs> in your circulation. And you know when when I used to get a blood test, um, you used to be able to see it with the blood test. The blood was milky; it was almost a yellowy, milky color to it. So and that that was because. I was absolutely floating in fat. That's one of the things, like the last time I went to the GP and they did my blood and, and you just, I get excited, you know, you get excited. It's a, well, what are my blood results going to be like this time? And then <clears throat> the last time I had the interaction was over the phone and which is an odd kind of thing, but uh-huh. where we're, where we're at today. But, um, she was saying, everything's looking great. And like, if you look at, I'd always ask, you know, because they have records. I was like, well, how does that how does that uh, compare to last year? Well, it's going down. It's trending down. And then I, and she's like, well, you probably still don't want to eat red meat every day. <laughs> OK, so, how, yeah, ask her how it was how it is compared to 2016 when you started this. <laughs> well, I was seeing a different GP at that time. And I remember oh, okay. that GP was like I remember he was he was an older guy and he told mm. me he said. If you want to lose weight, you have to be in ketosis. Oh, good. But he didn't elaborate. I had to go and figure out what that meant, and then here we are. (laughs) Here we are. And he was right. So you had a good doctor. You should go back to him if you can. (laughs) And then I went back years later, and I was talking – because he was also my grandmother's GP – and I was talking to him about some of the progress that I had made, and he was like floored, and he didn't even understand. I don't even think he remembered telling me about ketosis. Yeah. So was you? Yeah. You, so he would have had your grandmother's data as well. So he would uh, he would be aware of any hereditary um, 
similarities between you and your grandmother as well. So. Yeah, I mean, because my mom, like, she struggled with, like, heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and stuff. And, you know, that's, like, right before I found you guys and started on the path to losing weight and all that stuff. I was like, well, that's going to be my fate, too, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that's all changed, hopefully. I mean, you never know what's really going to happen in the future, but as long as I stay on this path, I think we'll be good. Yeah. Well, I'm, I have no intention of diverging. I don't. Quite, I, quite satisfied here. And that's one thing I said, like, if I would have maybe only had 10 to 15 pounds to lose or something when I found keto, I may have yeah, not have come to that epiphany. Well, this is where I'm going to be. Hmm. Because I think having, you know, so much weight to lose, it takes a lot of time. And then you have a chance to realize all the benefits because i mean you know even still to this day you know personal friends and stuff will come to me and they'll say can you help me get started and of course you know i'll help them and they're like well i don't know if i'm going to do it long term i just want to lose x amount of weight then i want to and then i'm going to go back doing what i'm doing and i'm like well it's probably not going to work then 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 you'll go back to where yeah, yeah you'll go back to where you were further along the path yeah it's it's one of these things that uh it sounds scary making a change that you're going to do for the rest of your life but if it's a change that you enjoy if it's something that you know i eat, i eat wonderfully compared to what i ate beforehand i my 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 lifestyle is awesome compared to what it was beforehand now, i saw that pork um, belly richard yeah the pork belly's pretty damn good you know that's uh uh and i think i eat pork belly several times a month so um yeah, I, you know, so, so, uh, and my, 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 uh, my biomarkers have, have, have never gone back to being diabetic. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll take that as a comment that I should eat less red meat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 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 rather than an argument, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear an, I didn't hear a cogent argument in there as to why I should eat less red meat. <laughs> I know. I mean, and, and you have to take that with a grain of salt. You just have to kind of, well, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to eat less red meat, yeah. even that's what I eat every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it, the uh, ruminant meat is is really some of the some of the best lipid profiles. Uh, monogasts like pigs and and chicken tend to have a lot of lipids that they eat, uh, whereas ruminants they manufacture it in their in their four four chambered stomachs. So, well, in fact, the bacteria living in their four chambered stomachs manufacture it through fermentation. So, um, you know, it's a much better. I think probably more species appropriate to human diet, but. Uh, as you say, you know, I, I do eat a lot of, uh, um, I do eat a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, pork belly. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I have We haven't had it in a while. We kind of got burnt out. We were having it too much because I'll buy the 10-pound slab and we'll cut it down and then we'll eat it for a couple of days. And then, well, we just kind of get tired. I mean, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when you're tired of eating pork belly, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I think I'll need to go buy one soon and make one. Put, it, put on how I make it on a video so people can see that. So, but Richard, it's been a wonderful experience sitting and getting a chance to talk to you. I mean, you're one of my, you know, one of my heroes. You'll be I somebody that, else's hero. You watch. <laughs> well, I It'll hope. Happen. I hope. I mean, and, and I know that that sounds like big headed, but I hope that I can help somebody make a real change. 
that helps their life. I mean, it's not, I don't want to be famous or whatever, but I want to make somebody's life better. And I, and I really enjoy these conversations because I think it helps push us as a, you know, as a people forward. I think, especially this day and age, having a, you know, a long in-depth conversation with somebody is kind of an undervalued thing that happens. So. Well, thank you for doing this. You're welcome. And thank you for doing this. And, uh, I wish only great things for your podcast. Well, I appreciate that, Richard. Anything you want to tell everybody before we go? Anything you've got going on that anybody should be concerned about or nah, excited I'll, for? I will pop up at the usual times uh, whenever I you know, between study. So, uh, um, but I have no no uh, I have no books to sell or podcasts or anything. I, I am working on a book called Why Is the Fat Man Hungry? But uh, that's uh, that's on the back burner until I finish my honors. So you're not going to sell us any ketones or anything like that, Richard? <laughs> I've never sold a ketone in my life. <laughs> I appreciate that. And thanks again so much for being here. And uh, I look forward to you're seeing welcome. all the great things you do. Ah, you're welcome. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks so much, Richard. Richard.